You are listening to the Resonate Church Sermon Podcast. Resonate is a collegiate church planning network in the Northwest. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at resonate.net. Well, hey, my name is Josh, and I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, if you have a Bible, would you grab it and turn to Luke chapter 19? Luke chapter 19. We've been in the book of Luke for a long time, like 30-something weeks, and we are coming down to the final week of Jesus' life. So it is uh, a, a culmination of lots of things have happened that have led us to a place where Jesus is going into uh, what is historically known as Holy Week or Passion Week, and that's where we pick up in Luke chapter 19. The, the climax of the story is on its way. Uh, and as you're turning to Luke 19, um, as we enter into the story today, here, here's, what, here's what I was reminded of. Um, we, we know where this story is going. If you have any church background or if you have any cultural background, you, you have a general understanding of what happened to Jesus. But if you don't know the story, if you could put yourself in the first century mindset, they were just following along with the life of Jesus and they weren't sure how this thing was going to end. And so they're learning what's going to happen as they go. And Jesus has taught lots of things. And to some degree, as they head into Jerusalem in Luke chapter 19, they're all wondering, how is this going to play out and what's going to happen? Is Jesus going to live up to all that he said he was going to live up to? All that turn the other cheek talk, all that love your enemy talk, all that uh, stuff that he talked about um, caring for those who persecute you. Like, is he going to be able to live up to this? And we're going to get a look at the kind of person, the kind of character Jesus Jesus has when it actually costs something. And I think that's so significant for us because uh, if, you, if you look around the world, like if, you're, if you think about your friends or just looking at on the news, um, there is a major barrier for people who don't believe in Jesus to becoming believers in Jesus. And that major barrier, uh, to, to say it plainly, is the hypocrisy of Christians, the hypocrisy of the church broadly. People look at the, the claims of Christ, like I say I believe this about Jesus, but I actually live this way, or, or the double standards of like, oh, I care about this thing because this is really important to my political party, but I don't care about this other thing that's not as important. And there's a certain sense of inconsistency where, where people that claim to believe in Jesus have double lives. And there's these scandals that have come out recently of people having double lives, and, and the world looks at that and they go, that is not okay. And by the way, Jesus looks at that and says, that's not okay. But there's a, there's a sense at which Jesus isn't the issue for a lot of people. It's those who claim to be followers of Jesus that is the issue for a lot of people. And it's ultimately coming down to what's known as hypocrisy, the double standard, the, the self-righteousness they claim and the unrighteousness they live in. And in the Greek, this word hypocrite meant to be an actor. And so it's people that are acting one way, but, but really they have this as their character on the other side. And so we're going to take a look at Jesus and really ask the question, was Jesus a hypocrite? Or was he the person that could speak one thing and actually live up to it? Because there is a lot of hype leading up to Jesus entering Jerusalem, like lots of hype, like all throughout the gospel stories, we have heard who this guy could be, who he might be, what could be possible now if he is truly who he says he is. And even from his birth, there has been hype around Jesus. Uh, in one of the other gospels, the gospel of Matthew chapter two, uh, when, when the magi come to see Jesus, they go to him in, Ma in Matthew two, verse two, it said they came seeking the one who has been born king of the Jews. 
So even when Jesus is born, there's people coming like this guy might be the king. In Matthew chapter 12, after one of the miracles, the crowd asked, could this be the son of David, which is a a Jewish way of saying, could this be the king that we have long been waiting for? Uh, And right before Jesus heads into Jerusalem, which is in Luke chapter 19, the last thing Jesus does before going into Jerusalem in the last week of his life The final miracle he does before going into Jerusalem is he raises his friend Lazarus from the dead. Like he's headed to Jerusalem and on the way, like Mary and Martha come to him and they're like, our brother died, your friend Lazarus died, Jesus, where were you? And Jesus weeps over his friend Lazarus and then goes and raises him from the dead, like calls out Lazarus, come back. And Lazarus like walks out of the grave. And then Jesus is like, okay, let's go on to Jerusalem. Like on the way, he raises someone from the dead. So the expectation is unbelievably high. This this approaching Jerusalem, the capital city Jerusalem, during the most significant week of the year, the week of Passover, is a big deal. And so Luke chapter 19, we, we enter the story with all this anticipation, all of this stuff going on, asking the question, can Jesus live up to all that he said that he was? And in verse 28, it says this. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And as he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which is the one that's never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead, uh, they found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, the owner asked them, why are you untying the colt? And they replied, the Lord needs it. I just think that's funny. That's not a part of the sermon today. I just think that's amazing that Jesus is like, go get this colt. And then if they ask you what's going on, just say the Lord needs it. So they go get the colt and the owner looks outside and he's like, someone's stealing my colt. And he runs out and they're like, we're not stealing it. The Lord needs it. And he's like, oh, just making sure you weren't stealing it. The Lord, it was, oh, okay, it's the Lord. Cool. Which reminds me of my favorite movie, Nacho Libre, where Nacho Libre has these chips that he's trying to deliver to the orphanage, and this guy attacks Nacho Libre in the alley and steals his chips. And then Nacho has to go back and tell the priest, man, this guy in the alley stole my chips. And the the nuns and the priest look back at Nacho and say, well, did you tell him those were the Lord's chips? And Nacho's like, no, I didn't tell him. Go back and tell him he stole the Lord's chips. This is the Lord's cult. Okay, moving on. (laughs) Nothing to do with the sermon. But if I think it, I've got to share it with you. Okay, verse 35. They brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their uh, cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. And when he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all of the miracles that they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. The the religious guys are like, hey, you're embarrassing us. Tell them to settle down. And Jesus responds, I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. The magnitude of what is happening in the story, Jesus says, all of creation is watching and waiting for what's about to go down. 
If these disciples do not cry out, the stones will cry out because they know what's about to go on. Jesus is saying, I am worthy of the praise that is being received to me. And if I don't receive the praise from the disciples, don't worry, creation itself will cry out. What a claim Jesus makes, that even creation worships him. What an unbelievable claim. Something massive is happening as he approaches Jerusalem. In verse 41, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had known on this day what would bring you peace. If you, if you only knew, Jesus says, he looks at the city and says, if you only knew the cost of what's going to bring you peace. If you only knew the cost of what's going to bring you peace. But now it has been hidden from your eyes. So this is Jesus entering into Jerusalem. And what we see in this passage is God's divine plan which has been set in motion before the world began, is coming to a great climax, and it all starts with a ride into Jerusalem. And right away, you feel the tension of the story because you have the joy of the disciples excited about Jesus going to Jerusalem. They're not quite sure what he's doing there, but you also have the sorrow of Jesus recognizing uh, what's ahead of him and, and the sadness that's to come and the joy. This is historically known as Palm Sunday. Maybe you've, you've seen this if you have church background. Usually somebody, a preacher preaches this like right before Easter, and so here we are in the summertime, and you're like, why are you preaching Palm Sunday? Well, we're going through the book of Luke. Like, it doesn't belong only on one Sunday a year. This is a great story. And so Jesus is going into Jerusalem, and there is both great uh, anticipation and joy and also great sorrows. And the glory you see of, of the one true king riding in on a colt, on, on a donkey, like riding in like that. He is not coming in with the power that you might assume. He is coming in humbly. He is coming in uh, sorrowfully yet joyfully. And it's at this point in the story, we have to remind ourselves of who Jesus is. And, and let me say it as clearly as I can. Let me remind us of something. The story of Jesus Christ is the story of the only one who is fully human and fully divine. The story of Jesus Christ is the story of the only one in human history who is fully human and fully divine. He is riding into Jerusalem as the one true king seeking a true people who will live under his reign and, and rule forever. And he is fully God, so he knows what's about to happen. He is fully aware of the plot that is ahead of him. The next seven days are very much laid out in his mind as he is fully God and fully planned this thing and fully understands what it's going to cost. And the thought of it is already swelling up in him emotion because he knows what's about to go down. So he is fully aware of that as God, of what must happen on the days ahead. But he is also fully man, which means he is not robotic. He is not distant. He is not in a hurry. He doesn't forbid the worship and say, hey, just don't worry about that. Let's hurry up. Let's get this thing over with. I have some stuff to do, and I'm anxious about it, and I'm worried about it, I'm stressed out about it. Let's hurry up. No, he doesn't do any of that. He feels the emotion of what is going to happen as a man, and he has planned the events that are about to happen as he is God. He feels the emotion as a man, and yet he orchestrated the events in human history as he is God, Jesus is going into Jerusalem to do what he was born to do, which is lay down his life in the place of all mankind. Jesus was born to die. 
And in dying, in giving his life, he is going to show the world once and for all that he can do what he said he was going to do, that he is absolutely not a hypocrite. If he was a hypocrite, he would see what's coming and he would bail, he would run the other way and he would get out of there, but he is not. He is one who can live up to the words he has spoken. It's the only story of a truly human man and a truly God man. So as he is both, let me, let me clarify this. Jesus is riding into Jerusalem as a brokenhearted burden king. As he enters into the city, he is a brokenhearted, burdened king. Because he knows the cost of what's coming. He knows where this week is headed, and it burdens him. It, it overwhelms him emotionally. And some of us don't like the emotions that Jesus shows because you're like, if you're truly God, you need to lower the emotions. Some of us get uncomfortable with the thought of Jesus being God and God crying. God crying might make some of us uncomfortable, but the Bible records Jesus crying two times. One of them is in the story of Lazarus, which I mentioned earlier, which is the shortest verse in all the Bible. It says, Jesus wept. So if you're ever in a Bible memorization contest, John 11:35, Jesus wept. There you go. You're like, I know a verse. I memorized it just now. My scripture memory is struggling, not anymore. Jesus wept, John eleven thirty five. 35, I got it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's two, John 3, 6, okay, I'm kidding. That, you can memorize some verses if you pick the short ones. So Jesus weeps over the death of Lazarus, and the second one is when Jesus goes into Jerusalem, he, before he enters in, he sees the lostness and the brokenness of Jerusalem, which by the way, is just a picture of humanity. He sees the lostness and brokenness of all of humanity, and he weeps, and he's, he's broken. And again, that creates that tension, because you've got all these disciples around praising him, singing to him, dropping their cloaks and their palm branches, shouting out glory to God in the highest, and the one on the horse sees all that's happening around him, but in his heart he is sorrowful, because he knows that they don't understand what's going on. He knows what's on the other side of this, and they do not understand what's going on. Jonathan Wilson, in his book, God So Loved the World, says this. He says, the contrast in Luke 19 is overwhelming. The king's people shouting for joy and the king himself weeping over the guilty city where the greatest tragedy in the history of the whole universe was about to take place. The greatest tragedy in the history of all the universe. The killing of the sinless son of God. The greatest tragedy in all of human history. He's weeping over that. He's the sinless, glorious son of God. And he's about to offer himself up to the wicked Roman empire, to the wicked religious leaders. And it's going to lead to the darkest sin and what would look like the worst tragedy that this world has ever seen. But if man only had planned that, then it would be dark and broken and, and, and tragic. But if God himself had orchestrated the events in human history to make this happen, then it's not just brokenhearted, burdened Jesus. There's another part of the story that we must understand. He's not only going into Jerusalem with a broken and burdened heart. Jesus is riding into Jerusalem. Jerusalem as well as God's victorious king over all. He's not only the brokenhearted, burdened savior, he's going into Jerusalem saying, I am the one true king that God has given victory over all. The gospel story being described as a victory is a very healthy and clear way to describe what happens in the story because Jesus is going into Jerusalem to win a victory, to win a victory. 
The next week of his life will lead to a victory that changes the landscape of all humanity. A never-ending, once-and-for-all victory is about to happen, and the echoes of this event will still permeate the fabric of society to this day. What he is going to do in the next week, called Passion Week or Holy Week, is what the book of Hebrews calls the culmination of the ages. That God is about to do something in Christ that all of the ages have been waiting on this thing to happen. That all of creation has been yearning for this thing to happen. The victory of Jesus is about to happen in this next week. And this is so important for us to recognize because this is, again, feels like the tension of both the sorrow of Christ and the victory of Christ. Because the victory of Jesus is not simply his healing which a lot of people think his healing is where the victory is. If he just does healing, then that's great. The victory of Jesus is not simply his teaching. What a lot of people want to do is say, Jesus is a great teacher. He's so victorious as a teacher. It's not about his healing. It's not about his teaching. His victory is not even in his followers or his ethics or his morals or his standards. The victory that Jesus offers and the victory that Jesus wins is seen climactically and profoundly, and permanently, and solely in his death. The victory of Christ is won in the death of Christ. Jesus dies. He goes to Jerusalem to die. And it's so commonplace, you almost don't even feel like it's worth mentioning. You, you come to church, you're like, oh, I know that, man. I've, I've seen art. I have a necklace. I know the story. Like, I know he dies. I've, I've heard that before. But do you recognize he was born to go to Jerusalem? He was born to head to this place. He goes into Jerusalem to die. And it is in his death we get our victory. And you go, victory? What, what, what victory is won when Jesus dies? When Jesus dies, which is what he went into Jerusalem to do, which is what makes him so sorrowful as he enters into Jerusalem because he knows this is going to happen, Jesus in his death was victorious over our disobedience. Jesus in his death was victorious over the curse of sin, dominating and, and enslaving all of humanity. Jesus in his death was victorious over fear, anxiety, insecurity, gossip, slander, pain, disease, sexual immorality, comparison, sorrow, hypocrisy. Every sin imaginable was piled on Jesus on the cross, hoping to somehow have victory over Jesus. But it is in his death, in his laying down of his life, in his intentionally going to Jerusalem for that moment, that all of those sins imaginable could not be victorious over Christ because it was his plan to lay down his life, therefore becoming victorious over them. Jesus in his death was victorious over every force of evil that is trying to keep you and I dead even now in this moment. He was victorious over that. One of the main reasons you and I cannot save ourselves is because there is a spiritual thing necessary in salvation that you and I cannot accomplish. So often we think of salvation as being a good person or doing these physically good things or thinking good thoughts or doing more good than bad. But there is a spiritual necessity in salvation that we are powerless against a spiritual force. And the victory that was won by God on that day through Jesus Christ 
was that the disobedience of all of humanity was defeated by the, dis, by the obedience of one human. The immorality of all humanity was defeated by the morality of one man. The sin of all of humanity was defeated by the sinlessness of one man. His trip to Jerusalem was no accident. He's not going there simply to get praises and palm branches and ride a donkey and all these other things. He is going there for something unbelievably strategic and unbelievably important, and that is this. Jesus is riding into Jerusalem to kill sin and death, just as he and his Father and the Spirit planned before the world began. He is riding into Jerusalem to put an end to death itself. And so many people thought he's a political criminal, he's a religious blasphemer, he's a social misfit, he's a false teacher, and nobody understood, and it broke Jesus' heart, nobody understood that he was actually the true king, the son of God, the long-awaited savior, and he had promised that he was going to die. He had spoken about his resurrection. He had actually, do you guys know this? Jesus calls himself the resurrection and the life. He calls himself the resurrection. And now when all eyes are on him coming into Jerusalem, everyone is asking the question, can this teacher live up to his teaching or is he a hypocrite like all the others? But again, they misunderstood one basic thing and this is what makes Jesus weep as he goes into Jerusalem. What does the text say? The text says they don't understand the cost of the peace that is necessary. The peace that they most need has a cost. And they don't understand that cost. And Jesus knows that cost. And the reason he knows that cost is because he planned to pay that cost. I so clearly want us to see Jesus going into Jerusalem on purpose. And the best way I can explain this is simply to say that salvation was a plan. The gospel is a plan. It was a plan set in motion by God and Christ And in the spirit, it was a good work that happened in in, in human history. The gospel was a set of events in human history that would forever change the course of human history. And we're, we're walking into its crescendo moment. And the crescendo moment is Jesus going into Jerusalem to obediently sacrifice himself in the place of sinners. The gospel story is a story of, uh, of Jesus going one obedient step after another, one intentional step after another, ultimately leading to the greatest act of obedience in human history, which is laying down his life in our place. And you okay, Josh, that was a lot. You you talked a lot about Jesus doing all these things on purpose. What does that mean to me? Why why does that matter to me? Here's why it matters. Because to be a disciple, to, to be a disciple, which is what Jesus called his followers, disciples, is to recognize his intentionality in doing those things was so that our lives would have the similar intentionality. That that to be a disciple is the exchanging of sin and death and receiving the everlasting joy in life that he offers us. Jesus had everlasting life and joy, and he gave that up on the cross and took my sin and my death so that he could offer me joy and life. And the crowds that day, they missed it, and they misunderstood that he was, he was the victor over sin and death. And if we can see that he did this on purpose, it might emotively engage us enough to, to find ourselves changing because have you ever asked the question, like, why did, why did Jesus go? Like, w- wasn't there another way? Like, like, what if Jesus would have just, like, died of old age? Like, why couldn't he just, like, have taught for 40 years and then, like, passed away when he was in his 80s or something? And, like, wouldn't that be good for salvation, too? 
Because this is a young man. Jesus started his ministry when he was 30. He's 33, some people would say, around 33 years old at this time. Why does he have to go to Jerusalem? Why is he so fixated? Luke chapter 9, verse 51, the Bible says Jesus' face was fixed like flint towards Jerusalem. He was fixated on going to Jerusalem. Why is he so intrigued by Jerusalem? Why is he overwhelmingly, uh, unstoppably headed towards Jerusalem? It would seem like he has a mild obsession with accomplishing this task. Why does he have to go? Why does he go into Jerusalem in our place? What's that for? And the the historical Christian answer, and I hope that we feel this today, is for two reasons. It's he went for God's glory and our joy. That's why Jesus goes. He, He goes into Jerusalem, into Holy Week, into Passion Week, because there was a plan set in motion that would bring God glory and bring his people joy. And you go, what's that necessary? Why why is that so important? And this is the part where you and I have to be honest. And and honestly, every time you and I fight sin, we are going to lose unless Jesus is the one fighting in our place. Because sin is not so much an individual act as it is a kingdom that controls and destroys humanity. Death is over us, giving us an eternal stronghold. And Jesus knows that about us, and it makes him weep. And so he goes in our place knowing that he's the only one that can be victorious over this. He's the only one that can self-sacrifice and take the pain that we deserve to give us the assurance of safety we have not earned. And I submit to you, anytime you see this in the world, it moves you. I remember being a little kid and I grew up in Texas and we were driving and a red wasp in Texas is like the most pain you could feel. A red wasp was in our car. And my mom and my dad and and we had a brother and a sister. So there's three kids in the back and mom and dad. And there's a red wasp flying around the car and it lands on the dashboard. And I remember my dad just grabbing the red wasp and holding it in his hand and like squeezing it to death. And he got stung on his hand. His hand blew up really big. And he looked back and jokingly was like, now you see that I love you kids. (laughs) We're like, the clearest way to show love was to grab a red wasp and hold it and take the pain. And then my mom like pulls out a cigarette and is like putting tobacco on it because allegedly tobacco pulled out stingers and she smoked. So whatever. But the point of the story is like my, my dad grabbing that wasp is still like stuck in my brain as an act of self-sacrificial love. I'm like, man, that was amazing. That brother grabbed a red wasp in my place. Wow. I saw a video recently of uh, a, a little kid that had some, some dogs that were attacking it, and a mom like grabbed this little kid. This video was online, and she just holds the kid like above her head, and the dogs are then attacking her, and she just takes it while protecting her kid. And, and the video goes viral for a reason, because people see that kind of self-sacrificial love, someone taking the pain of someone else because they love them, and they're overwhelmed by that. And they see the beauty of that, and they're drawn to that. I remember watching the movie Armageddon, which none of you young people have seen the movie Armageddon, but there's a place where Bruce Willis and Ben Affleck go down to the final moment of who's going to lay down their lives, and it's supposed to be Ben Affleck, but Ben Affleck's in love with Bruce Willis's daughter, and so the last moment, I'm ruining the movie, but you've had your chance to see it. It's well past time. Uh, Ben Affleck gets pulled out, and Bruce Willis steps in his place, and, and Bruce Willis looks at Ben Affleck and says, take care of my daughter, and you're like, oh my gosh. You're about to like save the world and protect your daughter and die in this guy's place. This is the greatest moment in human history. 
And if you've watched the movie Inside Out, you know this part where, the, you know, the imaginary friend takes the loss so that, you know, the, I don't even know the whatever. You've seen it. There's something in those self-sacrificial moments where you're drawn to that and you're blown away by that and you're moved by those moments. But my question is, honestly, how, how often do you recognize that Jesus going into Jerusalem and going to the cross in our place was an act of unbelievable obedience, taking unbelievable pain and unbelievable sorrow And then that was offered to us when we did nothing to deserve it, nothing to earn it. And when you ask the question, why did you do that? The response is love. Because I love you. I love you. And I love you so much, I'm I'm burdened to the point of tears. Jesus is burdened to the point of tears Because so many people in the world, in that time it was Jerusalem, but in the world at large, that they don't recognize how much he loves them, to what extent he has gone to show his love, to what glorious ends he has gone to make sure everyone in the whole world, everyone that's ever lived would know they are loved by God. And it is demonstrated For the whole world to see when Jesus goes into Jerusalem, ultimately to lay down his life publicly on the cross, put into a grave where everybody knew where the grave was, and then he raises from the dead, victorious over sin, victorious over death, victorious over Satan, victorious over hell, victorious over everything, and then offers that to us because he loves us. He is not a hypocrite. He is not one who says one thing and does another. He is one who is unbelievably victorious while simultaneously being unbelievably burdened. And I submit to you that is the duality of the Christian life as we should know it. The Christian life, to be a disciple, is to operate in the duality of victory and burden. Victory over sin and burden for the lost. If you have experienced the victory of Christ, then we also have to experience the burden of Christ. Nothing in your life will have the final word over you. Jesus has paid it all. The final victory has been given nothing. Jesus will lose to nothing. Jesus has no rival. He has no equal. No one compares to him. He is eternally victorious, and he is on your side because he loves you. But so many of us, we don't feel victorious. We don't feel all of these things. And we think that somehow because we don't feel it, it's not true. But listen, our feelings are the shallowest part of our nature. And salvation is the deepest work of God in our nature. Your feelings are unbelievably shallow. Like what you had for breakfast will affect your day. That's how shallow your feelings are. You cannot build a a house worth living in on the foundation of your feelings. I submit to you, take the, the salvation of God, the victory of God out of the realm of your fickle emotions and believe to, and begin to build your life on the belief that this is true because the word of God says it's true. But so many people in our world, we talk about victory and sometimes our minds go to the wrong things and we're like, victory means I never suffer. I never have issues. I only have money. I only have health. I only have wealth. I only have good things. And, and we think victory is somehow this ongoing operational blessing at all times and all things. And that is so untrue. How do I know that's so untrue? I know that's untrue because it was untrue of Jesus. 
It was untrue of the disciples. It was untrue of the apostles. They had tons of issues, tons of suffering, tons of sorrow, but they operated in God's victory. So victory in Christ is not measured by how much health and wealth you have. It's measured by how much freedom in Christ you have. How much freedom do you have to be generous? How much freedom do you have to suffer? How much freedom do you have to to fight back against sin? How much freedom do you have to, to walk away from social things that are not healthy to you? How much freedom do you have to be where God's called you to be or do what God's called you to do? How much freedom do you walk in? The amount of freedom that you walk in is the amount of victory you're experiencing. Not the amount of stuff you have. Stuff goes away, but character is being built when you recognize the freedom that you have is because of the victory that you have. And the way that you experience this, truly, that that Jesus going into Jerusalem to ultimately lay down his life, the way that you and I experience that is to see what he has accomplished and believe it to be true in our hearts by renouncing the things that, that end up hurting us. So how do you renounce those things? Well, well, it's, if you take this symbolism of king, then, then you honestly ask the question of your heart. What, what is operating as the king of my heart? And then it leads to this one-two punch of, uh, first, there must be a dethronement of sin, dethroning the sin in my life. And then secondly, there must be an enthronement of the Savior. If Jesus really did all that for me, offers me the victory, And that victory is freedom in Christ, freedom from sin, fighting back with the victory of Christ, understanding that the battle's already been won, that I need to dethrone sin. I need to renounce the sin in my heart and put Christ back on the throne where he belongs and he earned and he deserves to be. So dethroning the sin, Romans chapter 6 says you're no longer a slave to that, but now you're a slave to righteousness, enthroning who Christ is in our lives. Renounce those things. Jesus was victorious by being obedient. If you're not experiencing the victory of Jesus, it might be because you're not operating in the obedience of Jesus. The more obedience you walk in, the more freedom you walk in, the more victory you walk in. And Jesus was victorious over sin. And Jesus was obedient even unto death, even unto hardship. The disciples were free to be obedient even unto death. Are we free to be obedient in that way? And then lastly, if the duality of the disciples' life is a life of victory and a life of burden, because Jesus, the true king going into Jerusalem, goes in as victory, the, the victorious king overall, but also the burden king, then not only do we have the victory of Christ, we should also operate with the burden of Christ. And this is the part where it doesn't matter how much strategy we have as a church. You guys know we have like tons of vision and tons of strategy. We want to plant 21 churches by 2021. You're probably sick of hearing about it, honestly. You're like, oh, I know already, 21 by 21. Yeah, cool. No matter how much strategy we throw at you, no matter how much inspiration we give you, no matter how funny the stories are, no matter how tear-jerking the stories are, no matter how great the graphics are, and our graphics are pretty great, you can go a long way on inspiration and graphic design. And we are flirting with the limit at Resonate Church at how far you can go with inspiration, cool videos and graphic design can build an empire. But the only way the world is really gonna change and the only way this vision is actually gonna actualize is if something radical happens in your life where you start to believe that God has placed on you a burden for your lost friends. 
and you start to operate with the likeness of Christ when it comes to you personally bearing responsibility and sorrow for those in your life who do not know the price that was paid for their peace. Jesus says Jerusalem does not understand the price that was paid, the price that's going to have to be paid for their peace. That insinuates there is not peace. So this person who does not know Christ means they do not have peace with Christ. And Jesus understood that we did not have peace with God, and that brought him great sorrow, and that brought him great burden. And in the middle of worship songs, Jesus was weeping over the lostness of the city. When's the last time in the middle of a worship set you were weeping over the lostness of your friends who don't know Christ? When's the last time in the middle of a celebration you were weeping at a baptism service because you knew that there were people in your life that don't know the peace that has been paid for them? There's a burden that we have to experience. There's a burden that Christ experienced, but unfortunately, the longer you are in the faith, oftentimes the more further removed you are from the lost people of the world. Oftentimes, the longer you have faith, the further you are removed. That was the absolute opposite for Jesus. He was notoriously the friend of sinners, notoriously hanging out with people who seemed to be unreligious or irreligious or uninterested in religion. Jesus always went to them. The crying need for us today as a church is for us to have a burden for people who are on their way to an everlasting eternity away from the one true, glorious, victorious God who has done everything imaginable so that they would know him. So how dare we operate with the victory of Christ without having the burden of Christ? How dare we as disciples think, I want the blessing of God without the burden of God? There is no way in the world you can reconcile a Christ-like life that doesn't both have the victory of knowing the gospel and trusting what Christ has given us and then somehow doesn't have the burden for those in our world, in our neighborhood, and our coworkers who don't know Christ. There is no such Christianity in the Bible. That is hypocrisy. And that's what the world wants nothing of. But if the world sees you operate with victory in Christ, but also a genuine love and concern and and burden for the lost, then they will see that you are like your Christ and you are not a hypocrite. You do not live a double life. You are honest about your shortcomings and vulnerable about your, uh, your sins and your insecurities, but you still have the victory that Jesus has given you. But how dare we sing worship songs and live lives of victorious Christianity without operating with the burden that Jesus obviously operated in and have the sorrow that Jesus obviously had. You have to have both. You have to have both to have the consistency that Christ walked in. And if you don't have both, you repent and you respond and you ask Christ to give you his heart. The founder of the Salvation Army is a man named William Booth. And he was known to be a great evangelist, and he trained people to be great evangelists. And he was once asked, uh, Mr. Booth, do you think you have the best training program to teach people how to witness for Jesus Christ and win souls for the Lord? And William Booth replied, no, I do not think my methods are the best, me- best methods. I think the best method of giving people a burden for lost souls 
would be to take them to the devil's hell and allow them to experience what it would be like to be lost in hell, separated from God for an eternity in the fire that could never be quenched. Then I believe men and women would truly have a burden and they would know what it is like to be a soul winner because they have seen what it is like to be lost. Do you feel the urgency and the sorrow and the burden for those around you who are not reconciled to God, who are not walking in the knowledge of what Christ has paid for on their behalf? Do you feel the urgency and the sorrow of an eternity away from God to such a degree you feel that, that you're willing to be socially awkward if necessary, uh, lovingly invitational, whatever it takes, you're willing to do it. The Apostle Paul said that he wished he could be accursed so that his fellow people would come to know Jesus. And you know theologically that's not possible for the Apostle Paul to be accursed. But what he was saying is, I will do whatever it takes to make sure as many people as possible hear the good news of what Jesus has accomplished. So by way of closing, there's a victory and there's a burden. If you are not yet a Christian, then believe on Jesus. Believe his word, which promises victory over death and eternal life. Believe he was crucified. Believe he died in your place to suffer in agony in your place. Believe he rose again, and three days later, he is victorious over sin. He is victorious over Satan. Believe that he is coming back again. Believe that he loves you, and that his Father loves you, and nothing can separate you from that love. Believe in the victory of Jesus, and believe that by repenting and turning to his victory. If you are not a believer in Christ, trust in his victory. If you are a believer in Christ and you know his victory, then I would ask you to beg God to grow in your heart a burden for those who do not know his victory. And ask yourself honestly, am I personally concerned with those around me who do not know Christ? Because Jesus is personally concerned for those around you who do not know Christ. Am I willing to sacrifice my time and my efforts to build relationships with those around me who do not know Christ? because Jesus was willing to sacrifice his time and his energy to build relationships with those around him who did not know God. If that means you've got to go up on a hillside that overlooks your city, and you've got to ask God to give you a burden and do whatever it takes, but if you have the victory of Christ, you must also have the burden of Christ. And praise God, he is a gloriously good father who can offer us both. And he has offered us both in Christ because Christ was not a hypocrite. He did what he said he was going to do. And now he has offered that to his people so that we might be consistent as well. And we might walk in that life so the whole world could see the victory that has been won on their behalf. And they might receive that and the eternal life that goes with it. So let me pray that this morning we might be those people. We might walk in that truth. Father, thank you so much for the trip Jesus took to Jerusalem. And God, thank you that in that trip to Jerusalem, we see what kind of Savior he was. He's not a robotic, distant Savior. No, he is a sorrow-filled, burdened, broken-hearted Savior. But God, he's not just brokenhearted and burdened. He is also the victorious, true king of the world. And God, he has done everything imaginable. Jesus has, has paid it all. He's defeated death. 
But God, that, that duality that Jesus walked in must be the duality of our church. We must be a victorious people, a people who recognize the victory of Christ and apply it to their hearts daily. But God, we also, just as importantly, must be a burdened people, a people burdened for the brokenness of our city, the brokenness of campus, the brokenness of the Northwest, the brokenness of our country, the brokenness around us. We have to have a sorrow-filled burden for that. And God, if we do not have that burden, then we are inconsistent in the Christian life. We are hypocritical in the Christian life. That is not the life of a disciple. And so God, if we want to be disciples, if we want to be like Jesus, I pray that we learn to grow in both the victory of Christ and the burden of Christ. God, would you crush us this morning with a burden for the lost? And then would you raise us up again with the victory that Jesus offers? And God, on this Father's Day, I pray that us fathers would lead out in this. That as fathers, we would show our family how to operate with the victory of Christ and also how to operate with the burden of Christ. God, as fathers, we would help reorganize our schedules so that we could make time for those who don't know you. God, organize our money differently so we can be generous to those who do not know you. God, that we could be generous to church planting efforts which help people come to know you. God, that we would just be leaders in modeling a life of victory and a life of burden. So God, give us your heart because we want to be like you. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Resonate Church Sermon Podcast. If you are a college student in the Northwest or if you simply want to see college students come to know Jesus, please connect with us by visiting resonate.net.